0: You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network.
1: Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, Episode 76. Your hosts today are Chris Webster and Paul Zimmerman. On today's episode, Chris and Paul answer your tech questions. Let's get to it.
0: All right, welcome to Episode 76 of the Archaeotech Podcast. As I said in the introduction, we have a listener sort of feedback episode that we just created in the last few hours. How's it going, Paul?
1: It's going great. We're on spring break and I'm relaxing for a change. How <laughs> you doing?
0: Uh, I am not on spring break. I don't even know when that happens or what it means um, since I'm not a student or have children. So uh, I'm not relaxing, but I'm doing great. Uh, I've got an awesome conference coming up this weekend. Uh, the Nevada Archaeological Association It's a really small local affair. Um, I don't think I'm going to be able to do any recording. There's not even an exhibition hall. I'm the only exhibitor because I know the president. So I'm going to be in the hallway with like a thing. But uh, I'll have a wild note booth up there. But aside from that, um, after that, I'm going to the Northwest Anthropological Conference in Boise, Idaho. And there, I hope to actually do some some recording for uh, several of the podcasts. Hopefully, I can get some architect stuff in there. But again, this is a really small conference, so um, we'll see. We'll see. If you're at either of these conferences, actually, the NAA will have been passed by the time you're hearing this, so forget that one. But uh, if you're at NWAC, then let me know. You know, hit me up and we'll... Uh, uh, we'll chat or if you see me, if you miss that, I'll, the next conference after that is the SAA is in Washington, D.C. And I'm going to have recording, full recording capabilities, six track recording capabilities and beverages uh, in my hotel room studio at the conference hotel. So definitely find me there. Okay. Well, uh, this morning, you know, we've got a we've got a whole list of, of topics that we want to talk about, but they're not always completely fleshed out. <laughs> so when it comes up to a recording <laughs> time, we're like, um, let's talk about this. However, we thought, you know, this morning, let's just put out a call on social media and see if the, see if our audience, see if anybody we know, actually has any good tech questions because this podcast is really designed to help you out, the listener. And the best way we can do that is to, is to directly answer your questions. Now, I'll say right off the bat here, Paul and I have certain skill sets, but we may not know the answers to all these questions, but we can probably speak for a little while about all of them and, uh, and really, you know, maybe kind of dive into a little bit. But if you are an expert in one of the areas we're about to talk about and you want to come on the show and we can dedicate a show to that topic, that would be fantastic. Um, you can contact me at Chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. I'm on Twitter at Archeowebby, Webby, A-R-C-H-E-O Webby and Paul is at lugalcom So um, not lugalcom That's not a website. Um, at lugal no, on Twitter. Actually, that's,
1: my, that's my website <laughs> oh, too. Oh,
0: there you go. Find Paul there. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, there's not a whole lot there. There's a picture.
0: <laughs> nice, nice, nice. Okay, so let's just get to the first question. And these are in no particular order. They're just in the order that I copied and pasted them from Facebook. Um, I posted in the Archeo Field Text group, in case you're on Facebook and want to go um, engage with these. Uh, Archeo Field Text, the CRM Project Managers group, and then just on the APN uh, Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash arc Okay, so the first question, and we're just going to use first names here because I also didn't get permission to talk about anybody's names. <laughs> these are some of these are enclosed groups, so we'll just use first names, and I think that'll be okay. Uh, so James asks, is there a benefit using drone-mounted lidar as opposed to lidar survey using fixed-wing aircraft? Um, and then it's kind of a separate question: difference in image resolution. Um, Well, I think the first question is actually really easy. Um, Drone-mounted LiDAR is going to be one hell of a bit cheaper than fixed-wing aircraft, because fixed-wing aircraft are actual aircraft. They're bigger. They have different requirements. You need to be a licensed pilot. You need to hire somebody. The aircraft needs to be fitted with the LiDAR. I mean, you're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars setup cost just to have one of these, and I don't know what they charge by the hour, but... For probably what it costs to do a day's worth of LiDAR work with a fixed-wing aircraft, you could buy a fancy drone and a LiDAR unit and get all your stuff done and then own the equipment and then keep on trucking. So, Paul, I don't know if you have any insight.
1: Yeah, I thought this was an interesting question because I, I thought, um, you know, my experience with LiDAR so far, and I've never used it firsthand, but uh, what I know of it, it's big equipment that basically has to go on fixed-wing aircraft. I'm not surprised that there's uh, LiDAR available for drones, but I it's not something I'd looked into before It was... The, the question for me was: hey, Is uh, lidar better on fixed-wing aircraft, or is uh, the imaginary lidar that we haven't invented yet going to be better on drones? Um, I guess I'm probably a little behind the uh, behind the ball here. Um, what what is lidar like on drones? Have you used it? Have you? Seen I, I it? haven't.
0: I haven't personally used it, but I have seen it, and I know I'm going to go to their website right now. Arc aerial a r c h a e r i a l dot com. We'll have that in the show notes. They are doing a lot of really high-end stuff, and let's see, let's see if they specifically list that. Because uh, I know they were selling their drones, like they make drones that you can sell or that you can buy, but they also, uh, they also have services where they will just run everything. Because I think they realize that uh, hey, people don't how to people know how to do this, <laughs> so we need <laughs> to do it for them. Um, let's see, they've got a bunch of things here. Um, also, while I'm looking this up. I'm part of a a few drone users groups here in Reno and Nevada, as some people may know, was determined years ago, um, several years ago, to be one of the, quote, test sites, like national test sites, like the entire state. I think there's seven of them or something like that, where essentially drone regulation is just a little bit looser. And, you know, you can you can do stuff because we have wide open spaces and you can you can get permits in a little easier way to uh, to actually get some stuff done. Because of that, uh, the University of Nevada Reno here has a pretty extensive drone program, and they're doing a lot of stuff, and I've been a part of a few of the things um, related to that. And there's a company here in town. I think they're called Above Geo now uh, or something like that, and they do a lot of drone work, and they do LIDAR. Um, so they're hanging LIDAR off of not only fixed-wing um, remote aircraft, fixed-wing, uh, remote-controlled aircraft, but also drones, of course. LiDAR is really heavy, uh, from what I understand. So, I mean, it's not a small piece of equipment. So, putting it on a fixed-wing, even a remote-controlled fixed-wing aircraft means you can't use some of the really light ones. A lot of the, the fixed-wing drones are um, uh, like Styrofoam. I mean, they're, they're really lightweight. So, it'd be really difficult to put that on there. So, you need the lifting capabilities of like a Hexa or Octocopter. And yes, that's six or eight rotors to be able to hang the LiDAR unit off of there and then do that. Now, the other thing that I know just of drones is drones are going to have limited range and uh, speed and capabilities and stuff like that compared to a fixed wing aircraft. So one of your advantages to a fixed wing aircraft might just be speed. I mean, this aircraft can fly over at 150 plus miles per hour and just, I don't know what what the speed requirements for LiDAR to actually work, but it's light detection and ranging. So I'm guessing it probably travels at the speed of light. So that's pretty quick, which means you can be moving pretty quick and not lose a lot of resolution uh, in that. So I'm guessing the fixed wing aircraft, they're traveling at at least 100 miles per hour because otherwise they drop out of the sky and just cruising back and forth across the landscape. Now, there isn't a drone on the planet that's carrying LIDAR at those speeds. I mean, they're probably doing it at 15 or 20 miles per hour at best, but probably even slower than that. Um, So you've got to take that into account when you're looking at your costs. Do you do you have the ability to be there longer, and therefore you can do a drone survey? And can you get your equipment into the country if you're not doing it in the United States, um, or you're in some other country and you're coming to somewhere, wherever the case may be? Or can you hire somebody locally to do it in like two hours? What would take you a week to do? So you got to factor that into your cost as well. Do you even want to own the equipment? Do you want to learn how to do how to operate the equipment? You know, stuff like that. So uh, there's a lot of factors in it. Um, as far as um, I. I to answer your question, Paul, in the longest way I possibly can, yes, there is drone LIDAR. Uh, you just got to look at it on a case-by-case basis, um, whether or not it's going to be beneficial for you. If you're doing it a lot, you should probably own your own equipment. Um, th- that being said, experts out there can probably do what you can do better in a shorter period of time, even if they're using fixed-wing aircraft.
1: Well, um, I've got a uh, an idea mm-hmm. here. Again, not from ever having done LIDAR, but um, I would expect that fixed-wing aircraft, you can Bring a bigger lidar unit, and you can then shoot more lasers down at the ground uh, and get a better detailed or cover a wider range in a shorter amount of time than you would be able to with the drone um, lidar. For those that don't know, it's it's almost like X-ray imaging for uh, for for landscapes. You know, so it's been used with great success, and maybe you've seen over the last month there's been all over the news uh, archaeological news about a, a lidar project in uh, in Guatemala, mm-hmm. I believe. Um, maya one uh that found all sorts of evidence for um, for urban planning and uh and massive extent of uh, of archaeological sites beyond what was previously thought to exist and uh and that was done because lidar can then cover such a big area and works very nicely that those lasers um some of the bounce back off of the, uh, the canopy of the, uh, of the forest while others find a little hole and bounce off the, the, um, off the ground surface or off of architecture, whatever's down there on the ground level. And, uh, and so then the software can then strip out that, uh, that upper level of noise. If you don't want to look at the canopy and look down then at what's on the surface. Uh, I think the more lasers you can fire down at the ground from on high, the, um, the uh, better detail, the more likely you're going to have ones that make it through that canopy and down to the ground. And then that brings up the other question. If you're using it in a jungle environment, it might be extremely difficult Mm -hmm. to fly your drones, right? You're not you might not want to have line of sight to uh, to your drone, <laughs> and if something goes wrong, it's going to be stuck a hundred feet up a tree instead of you know yeah. down to the ground level. So I think if you're looking at using it in a uh, jungle environment, that you'd be much better served with uh, with fixed wing uh, for the time being, at least until you have some drone that can fly uh, automated. Yeah, and I and suppose. most
0: of those will do that. But again, um, while while other countries might not require line of sight like uh, the United States does it's still a good idea if you're in an unfamiliar location. Uh, I mean, you could launch a drone from the middle of the jungle and send it up and pre-program in a route for it and have it just run that route. And if you know, there's not very many obstructions or, you know, you can get to the drone if you need to, because most of these like mine, um, and I mean, I don't have a high end commercial one. I mean, it's fairly high end, but it's not like the Octa. I mean, the Hexa, you know, the, the $10,000 drones, it's just like the $5,000 drone. And, uh, but that's a pretty big difference in commercial drone technology. Um, But anyway, with mine, uh, I've got an app right on my tablet that I can just create a flight path for it, send it up in the air and Mm -hmm. have it do its thing. And it will come back and land or hover, uh, whatever the case may be, and then come come back to me. Now, also... Nearly all of these drones have GPS on board. And this thing, even if I don't have like a cell service signal or something like that, that's real, that's giving me real time maps on the little map that I have on my screen, I can actually see where the drone is. It's still responding back to with its with its GPS coordinates. It's just not showing me a map. So if it did go down, I'd be able to actually find it um, to within a pretty close accuracy, at least where it roughly went down um, unless the GPS fails. So. So all these things are possible, but like you said, Paul, it comes down to, do you want to even, you know, deal with it in a jungle situation? <laughs> do you even want to hassle with it or do you <laughs> just want to call it in military style, you know, send in the LiDAR bird and, uh, and, and go that way? So I don't know. I'm also link- cool. linking real quick to a drone zone, a really good forum for drone stuff, a drone zone article on the top 10 uh, LiDAR sensors for drones. So um, check those out. See, see what you think
1: looking at this lidar um, you know this this uh, the news release that happened last month about the uh, the sites in uh, in Guatemala um, I'm kind of interested in this because one of the principals on the project is Marcello Canuto who went to school with me at, at Penn and he also grew up right in the same neighborhood as my wife so they've known each other since they were children um, so maybe I'll uh, get in touch with him reach out to him see if we can get him on mm-hmm. uh, on this podcast, or maybe uh, I, I'd suggest it to you earlier. It might make sense also to have him over on uh, the archaeology show but uh, to see what he can say about it. But I was looking uh, at various articles quickly to jog my memory uh, before we start recording, and NPR has one, Game Changer Maya cities unearthed in Guatemala us using lasers. Mm. And uh, I just want to pull this one quote out here because this is, I think, a distinct advantage than uh, in this case of using fixed-wing aircraft versus a drone. So the quote is LIDAR allows scientists to accomplish years or even decades worth of mapping in a single afternoon. Oh my God. For example, Garrison says he was part of a team that worked for some eight years to map less than a square mile at the site called El Zotz. The plane using LIDAR took data for 67 square miles in a matter of hours. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> so, again, this is a big project and they were well funded and well planned and well executed, apparently. But um, but the fixed wing aircraft can cover 67 square miles in a matter of hours. You're not going to be able to get your drone uh, up that long. Yeah. uh, Matter of hours, right. Not going
0: to be able to cover that much area. No, you'd have a backpack full of batteries just to do that. So, um, Mm -hmm. and when you start adding these, these relatively heavy sensors, I mean, they're getting smaller, but you start adding these sensors on there and your battery time just starts to decrease even more. Um, This, one of these, uh, things I clicked into, and I, it doesn't say what kind of drones you can actually fit on, so you'd have to look at that, but just to give you an idea on price, there are LiDAR sensor kits here on this article um, ranging from just $115, $115 up to about $1,000, depending on how many sensors you're actually using, um, which what I'm noticing here is determining your uh, your detection range. A lot of these uh, detection ranges are, are less than three to 400 feet, somewhere around 700 feet, which means that's the... The distance that you can be from the objects that you're using lidar on, um, whereas a fixed wing aircraft can be higher because they've got a you know a massive sensor on there that's just sending out you know this huge, this huge pulse, um, and then also the number of segments apparently and the number of sensors that it's got on the return is really determining the cost here, um, which really is just determining. Uh, how this goes back to uh, the question from James is difference in image resolution. Well, it sounds like James, your difference in image resolution really just depends on the sensor itself. I'm going to say that probably that if you're using fixed wing LIDAR, like a, like an actual piloted fixed wing aircraft, the image resolution is probably top notch. It's probably the highest you're going to get because nobody's going to outfit uh, a plane with a shitty LIDAR sensor. <laughs> I mean, that just doesn't sound very cost effective. However, with drones, you're really going to have to pay attention to the limitations of the sensor, what you pay for the sensor and the image resolution you're going to get from that sensor. It, it, it's all going to be contingent upon what the person spent. So if you hire a LIDAR crew that's bringing drones down, ask about their sensors. What kind of resolution are they getting? What How how much can they cover per acre, per battery or per hour or whatever the case may be? Um, because the speed that they fly at and the Image resolution coming back is going to be heavily, heavily, heavily determined by the quality of the sensor that they've decided to put on there, and it's already a crowded market. There's probably hundreds of different variations out there that you can get for lidar. There isn't just like one or two, so be very careful um, and and probably probably ask for some sample data before you send somebody out there to do that, and uh, you know tell them tell make sure they tell you what parameters the sample data was taken at would be my guess, and uh, and go from there. So. We got any more on LIDAR?
1: No, that's a well more than I already knew about it. So uh.
0: <laughs> me too, actually. Um, that's what I love about this podcast. It actually gets us learning things too, and then we can take what we learned and send it out to the thousands of people that listen to this. So it is a lot of fun that. Yeah. All right. Well we're pretty close to a break, so let's just do that and uh, we'll come back on the other side. In the meantime, go to arcpodnet.com forward slash members to support us and bring more awesome content like this to your ears and uh, get a little bit of swag and extras in the process. All right. Back in a second.
1: This network is supported by our listeners. You can become a supporting member by going to arcpodnet.com slash members and signing up. As a supporting member, you have access to high quality downloads of each show and a discount at our future online store, and access to show hosts on a members-only Slack team. For professional members, we'll have training shows and other special content offered throughout the year. Once again, go to arcpodnet.com slash members to support the network and get some great extras and swag in the process. That's arcpodnet.com slash members.
0: All right. We are back with episode 76 with your technology questions. And again, if you want to add to this for the next time we do this, um, just send an email. Contact info is in the show notes at arcpodnet.com forward slash archeotech And for this episode, forward slash 76, check that out. Um, but anyway, let's move right along. And, and you can always, we got most of these off of Facebook. In fact, we got all these off of Facebook because we asked for them, but always feel free to send us a message um, over there on the ArcPodNet Facebook page and uh, send us your questions. So, Okay, this next one is from Adam again from Facebook, and this is an interesting question—not really a technology question, but I wanted to tackle it anyway. We'll spend a few minutes on it. Uh, how do our own biases influence the way we describe technology in prehistory? Now, that's a really interesting question because technology in prehistory is usually like lithic technology—you know, stone tools and and you know, fiber arts technology and the other. The other things that we find in the in the prehistoric record um, that were, I guess, technology for its time. But most people these days think of technology as something with a battery. So um, something something electronic. Um, Paul, do you got any thoughts on this? I mean, yeah, you, again,
1: it's, it's, it is much broader than technology. I think that it it goes really to how we interpret archaeological data in general. I mean, the first thing that I thought of is not particularly technical, but because last week uh, or in the last episode, rather, we were talking about um, about drawing, and one of the advantages of drawing mm-hmm. versus a more purely mechanical method of recording is that it does allow the archaeologist to interpret and illustrate what they're interpreting, right? And that can be good because mm-hmm. they can see things that otherwise you might not see in just a straight photograph, but it can also be bad because then it can introduce certain biases. And so what I thought of immediately when I read this, maybe it's because I had, uh, because I had my insights on my brain, but I remember some story of um, an early French explorer in, uh, in Mesoamerica drawing pictures of murals and the, the people had kind of French peasant hats on in his drawings. Um, you know, yeah. that's what he was expecting to see, so that's what he drew. You know, which makes sense. so we see this right, all right. along. I mean, it's, it, there's the joke of um, you know archaeologists. If you don't know what it is, it's a ritual object or it's a spindle whorl, right? Uh, <laughs> um, nice. we, we do definitely use whatever language that we have currently available to describe things in the past, and it may be apt, it may not, depending. Um, so I've seen a lot of discussion lately. Um, about like network theory, um, communications networks and so on, uh, as models, not, not directly as, um, you know, not, not directly like saying that people in the past were using computer models and, and electronic communications, but using the metaphors of the internet, especially to describe things happening in the past. Um, I wish I could think of an example, a specific example of that right now, but I've definitely seen that right now. So I know that, that's, um, mm-hmm. that the, the language at least has, has kind of t- shifted that way with, uh, with certain interpretations. Uh, do you have any specifics of how we might describe something using modern technology terms that might be a bias for understanding ancient technologies?
0: You know, I, I'm trying to think of specific examples as well. Um, and really, um, really, I think the only things that kind of come to mind are like structure construction and things like that. You know, we find, say, pit houses and we find teepee rings and we find all kinds of stuff. And, you know, we, I, I don't know what sort of modern biases we're placing on these things because most of us have never constructed something like that. However, we think about how we would construct it. And then we, we tend to place that bias on the construction methods. Now, sometimes maybe we're right. Maybe there is only one way to make a teepee ring. Maybe there is only one way to make a pit house and to put posts in the ground and to do different things, but maybe there's not, you know what I mean? I mean, Mm -hmm. maybe there's maybe the, the actual method of construction, like let's look at, I mean, the easy go-to is obviously the pyramids or the, the Rapa Nui, you know, Easter Island uh, Moai that we talked about a couple episodes ago, Uh, you know, we have no idea how they did those. We, we speculate, we have some theories, but we have no idea. And a lot of the ways that we're trying to figure out that they did, we're trying to, we're trying to use materials that they would have had at the time and say, well, could it have been this way? Could it have been that way? Um, But the, the simple fact is I think we're placing our, and there's no other way to do it, but we're placing our modern biases on these, um, these non-modern technologies. I didn't want to say prehistoric because in the case of like Egyptians, but um, either way, I don't think that's that's almost impossible not to do because we can't yeah. like take that bias away from our brains. You know the the people who were making these things like the 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 monolith, the the massive mound structures like in the in the Midwest and things like that in Ohio and around that area. Um, the people that were making these things, they didn't have the modern bias to cloud their judgment on how they were going to construct something. So they just did it the best way they knew how. Maybe it wasn't even the best way. Maybe it was just the way they decided to do it. And And they they went from there. So it's really difficult for us to actually accurately, I think, determine method of construction and and really analyze that just because we can't take our bias away. It's always going to be there.
1: Well, the importance then is understanding what the bias is and uh, and that just because you see it in a certain way doesn't mean that that's the only way it can be seen. Um, I was just thinking of one specific use of language, uh, modern language for describing some ancient technology is with the Antikythera mechanism.
0: Oh, yeah. Uh, How many times have you
1: seen that described as a computer? (laughs)
0: Right. Right?
1: I mean, I think a little more accurately, uh, accurately, read that Mm. in scare quotes if you want, um, or hear that in square quotes. is um, Square quotes? I'm not sure what those are. Square quotes.
0: I like square quotes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think it might be a little more accurate to compare it not to a computer, because then we're thinking of, you know, silicon and digital technology, but to think of it instead of an adding machine. Yeah, right? which we had in you know most offices up until the middle of last century, and that's a purely mechanical device um, f- intended to compute things. So it could be considered a computer mm-hmm. in some sense, but uh, you know I think that's a better analogy for what that theorem mechanism is. The problem is nowadays most people don't know what an adding machine is. Yeah, true. No actually seen one unless they happen to see one in a museum or uh, or find one. You know, in the in a back shelf of a uh, <laughs> Goodwill store or something.
0: Right, right. Yeah. Um, yeah. that That's a great example, too, the antikythera device or mechanism, whatever you want to call it. It's uh, We are trying to – now, they have done some – what is it? like? Was it MRI? Is that the right word? They were doing uh, – or CT scan or something like that, something that dives inside.
1: I don't both? I'm not certain.
0: Yeah, yeah, trying to trying to recreate this thing, but it's so ridiculously hard because of all the different gears. The thing that really intrigues me about that that device, from a technology standpoint, is that wasn't that wasn't developed or invented like from scratch. That was there was a, probably a long lineage of devices leading up to that thing, or at least not maybe devices that did the same thing, but at least the concepts of the gears and the intermeshing and the intertwining of the gears, like a watch, you know, really making those things work. There's got to be other things out there, and that's really just the the amazing thing to me is what what else is out there? Unless it was some wizard genius that was just like making this stuff, and you know nobody could replicate it after that, which has happened. through time. it was a genius, without oh, doubt, yeah.
1: without a doubt. I mean, uh, you know, I remember seeing once years ago uh, one of those old uh, Ray Harryhausen movies. You remember those stop motion oh, yeah, like yeah. Sinbad?
0: Yeah, totally. Oh,
1: those lovely! And I can't remember which one, but there was um. There was somebody had a uh, a mechanical bird, if I recall correctly, nice. and I remember seeing that at the time. And I would have been a kid; it would have been in the late seventies, early eighties when I saw this. And at the time, I thought, "Ah, oh, <laughs> why are they having a robot here?" And that totally pulls me out of the time period, yeah. you know. And I knew that yes, there aren't these huge monsters and everything, but I, but uh, it, it it really jarred me from actually enjoying that part of the movie, mm-hmm. and. You know. Now, forty years later, I, I think well, you know what <laughs> they may well have had just like that, you know, wind up um, little robots for better, lack of a better term, more apt term, right? Um, yeah, why not machines of some kind, kind of analogous to, I guess, um, a music box, only more complex.
0: Yeah, I mean, if there was one of these things back, you know, along, I don't remember what the Antikythera device dates to, but it's pretty old. Um, It's older than we would assume for that sort of technology anyway. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I I wish, man, I wish to hell that we could go back to that time frame and just let that inventor make him successful and and let him keep on going. Because you imagine the world we live in now if we had that kind of technology succeed back then. My God, (laughs) uh, I don't even know where we'd be. So we'd have our hoverboards. That's for damn sure. Um,
1: we'd be able to talk instantly with people across uh, a network distributed around the world. Ooh,
0: that's crazy.
1: Record our voices and let other people listen to them on their own devices that they carry <laughs> around and are fully self-contained, powered.
0: This this is not Indeed. the archaeological like... fantasies podcast, uh, Paul. We're not gonna. Oh,
1: wait. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> We're not gonna go there. Now we've already uh, dealt with uh, with drone right. base lidar and other uh, imaginary tech. Exactly. We're going to go on to
0: that, right? That's right. That's right. All right. Well, let's move on. Um, the, next, let's the next four questions I've got here, again, no particular order. I just, the order I copied them in. Um, they're all basically related to GIS and mapping. So um, we're going to, we might, We might be covering some of these together, um, but we'll see. The first one uh, from Melissa says, what are the best GIS methods to record transects? And then she says, phone apps, question mark. So I think really what she's asking, she knows you can use a GPS. She knows you could use a Trimble. I think what she's asking is what are the best phone apps to basically use for GIS. And when she says record transects, my first question would be, what do you mean record transects? Uh, do you mean desert survey in the West where you're just like, you want a record of the line that you walked? Because I have had clients that I've had private clients that said, we want your, basically your GPS KML file for what you walked just to prove that you did it. <laughs> <laughs> I've had, I've had people request that before. So you just basically leave your yeah. GPS on and it records the breadcrumb and you just export that as a KML line file and, and send it to them. And, um, So maybe that's what she's asking, and I can definitely uh, give some insight to that with some pretty quick stuff. Um, One of the ones that people kind of default to because of the name, um, because it's from Esri, is ArcGIS Collector. I've actually seen some really good really detailed um, transect modeling from the Middle East where um, everybody had collector just running on a tablet in the background and they were collecting stuff with it. They were collecting information, but they also just had it run at a track basically in the background and they were recording um, their position. Now, one of the problems you run into with phones or tablets or anything is if it loses that, it's got a weak GPS antenna to begin with, even like the high end devices, it's still a pretty weak GPS antenna. So, not only are you dealing with three to five meter resolution, um, which is like nine to 15 feet, or uh, 16 feet, give or take, uh, not only are you dealing with that low resolution, but you're also dealing with, if you stick it in your backpack and you forgot you were recording a track or or you go into a rock shelter or next to a big rock wall or um, under some power lines or something like that, some high tension power lines or something, you could affect that signal. and uh, And then you're going to end up with this jagged, you know, Line where it was recording your track nice and neatly, and then all of a sudden jumped half a mile over, and then came back, and then you keep on going. So that's going to affect your distance. It's going to affect everything. You need to clean that stuff up in post if you if you're looking for like an accurate yeah. distance measurement or something like that. Um, but anyway, ArcGIS Collector or you know Collector, they just call it. If you search for that, one that I've used quite a bit is just GPS tracks. Yeah, you know, just I, I'm not going to
1: ask you about that.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, GPS tracks. I've used that quite a bit for lots of different things. Um, again, they try to pack a lot into that app. So it does crash more than I'd like it to because they've got it doing too many things. I think, I think they just have it doing way too many things simultaneously. And, uh, it tends to, it tends to fail. If you've got a, an updating satellite map in the background that you've cached and then, you know, you're also recording a track and you're also trying to drop pins and you're doing all these things probably not going to have a lot of success with it, but if you just need to do like the one thing, then then GPS tracks is a pretty good one. Um, and then the, the final one I'll mention, uh, just because I have used it before, is Avenza Maps. Um, I think I've talked about that before. It's also got another name, uh, I think. But if you type in Avenza, you know, you'll find it. It's a basically kind of a rudimentary dev- um, app for doing this. You can, you can put maps in the background. You can download maps that you pay for from their library. Uh, you can put your own maps in there. Um, one of the cool ways that I used Avenza was I dropped in some historic, some geo-referenced historic maps of this this military base I was working on. And we were trying to find the historic roads. Like there's tons of roads out there. We were trying to figure out which ones were the old mm-hmm. ones. And because we needed to drive those and then identify the character of those roads. Well, I, I geo-referenced one in the GIS to a modern map and then dropped that geo-referenced map into Venza Maps and then had it sitting on a, a holder as an iPad mini on a holder on the dash of my truck. And we were basically... It was so weird watching our dot drive on this like 100 year old map <laughs> as we're out yeah. there on the landscape and go, oh, my God, we're right on that road. Like this is this is very accurately drawn. And, uh, yeah, and-
1: I've used that same program for uh, for going off roading in, in Vermont on class four roads. Yeah. Or you can download from the state. You can get the uh, the list and the uh, and maps of some of their class four roads and just layer it in there. And so that's really nice because that's data that wouldn't be in any other map.
0: Yeah. And I remembered um, Avenza PDF maps is what they typically call it. Um, uh-huh. Yeah, I'm going to put all this stuff in the show notes, too. I'm actually doing that right now. So so check check the show notes. You don't need to be like, write this stuff down. We'll have the links in there. Um, our awesome show poster, uh, the man in the hat, and I'm not going to use his name because he doesn't like that, but go find the man in the hat. <laughs> He's going to put that up <laughs> for us. Uh, anyway yeah, I think uh, I think that's about all we can really say on that topic unless you can think of any other apps, um, Paul that you've used or anything like that.
1: No, I was going to ask you about GPS tracks because we mentioned that as an app of the day um, yeah. a little while back, and uh, and you'd said that you used a lot. I only used it because I can then ha- export the uh, the data to import into Lightroom to combine with my DSLR pictures, so that I can get uh, GPS data assigned mm-hmm. to the uh, the DSLRs, which is works really nicely. Um, I don't yeah. use it a lot, but it, it's pretty slick that way. But that does bring up another question. Um, you know, one of the nice things about having a dedicated uh, GPS unit is being able to drop. Points too, as you go, not mm-hmm. just record the track, but also say, "Hey, something here," and tag it. Um, are we able to do that with these uh, with these various apps uh, GPS apps on um, on the phones?
0: Yes. Um, now, I know with uh, with GPS tracks, you can just be running a track, and then there's a, a confusing. They have a very confusing interface that they don't explain very well. There's like this little arrow button that's pointed up and pointed down that's basically like your, uh, your pin dropping app and you can just hit that and it'll drop a pin where you're standing. And then you can move that pin if you need to, or you can type into it and that you can tap into it and then change the coordinates on it and just make it exact. Um, we actually used GPS tracks on a project not too long ago to, um, it was kind of a, I mean, we came back out later on with a Trimble because I was renting the Trimble. So we wanted to be able to come back out and find this stuff because we had to do this project over like several weekends because of access. So it was actually, I think, five different weekends over the course of like six months. And I don't own a Trimble, so I wasn't going to go rent one each thing each time just so we could do a small section of this thing. So what we decided to do was we actually used GPS tracks to drop pins on where the artifacts were because we had to rebury them. They were found on a metal detector survey. So we reburied him, left a little bit of a clue for us as as to exactly where it was. And then we didn't leave like a pin flag or anything because we were coming back, like I said, months later. And then we came back with a proper GPS using GPS tracks um, to rock the line that we were recording and then stop on the pin that we had recorded. And we, since we had the exact coordinates typed in, it was really easy to refine those artifacts, find their exact point, and then record them to a submeter level. But yeah, the short answer is yes, you can do that. Some of them are more clunky than others, and some of them don't actually allow you to do that. I don't have enough experience to, with collector to tell you yes or no, um, but I know GPS tracks will allow you to do that. And my guess is PDF maps, events of PDF maps would not allow you to do that. It was basically kind of a, kind of a bare bones, just like it does a few things, um, but it does them well kind of application. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you really needed some, some high tech, you know, really high, high powered stuff, uh, it's not going to be the app for you. That being said, like I said, with GPS tracks is one of its big downsides is it does too much and then crashes. <laughs> <laughs> so... It's almost like a suite of apps that you need to do some sorts of things, which is which is bad and annoying. But then if you just understand that that's the world we live in, um, then that's I think it's kind of OK if, if you just I wish app developers would just focus on one thing that they do well rather than um, trying to stuff too much into an application. Um, but who knows? Uh, anyway, yeah, we're at the end of another segment, so
1: you want to tackle um uh, I'm just curious with this one question here. Chuck has a question that's not a question. It says Trimble data Dictionary. It sounds like it might be related to uh to what we were just discussing. Do you know what this means?
0: I do know what this means um and it's it's uh it's a confusing thing for a lot of people, so a data dictionary on a Trimble it's a it's a certain file type mm-hmm. and you need you need like the 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 certain program that comes with all this stuff to actually create a data dictionary but i think in just my conversations with people, and and to be fully honest, this was my initial understanding of it before anybody explained it to me or if I had to create one. I used to think a data dictionary was basically like, oh, we're going to have certain defined terms within the um, within the system that our company has decided we're going to call things this. And I was thinking of actual data and an actual dictionary like words. But really, what it is is it's it's predefined. Point types that you can take, basically. Um, so, what I mean by that is, if you just open a Trimble Rover file and you just start a new file to record stuff in, the only three options you're going to have to record are point, line, and polyline. Okay, mm-hmm. so that's it. You have point, line, and polyline. But if you create a data dictionary, you can, and, and those those lines are all going to be black too. Like the points will be black, though. Actually, they'll be little X's. Um, the uh, the lines will be black, and then the polylines will be black, and they're solid lines. There's nothing you can do about it. But if you create a data dictionary, you can have actually more stuff on the screen that says, oh, I'm recording a projectile point, and you can upload a little symbol or you can create a little thing. You can have it be a different color. So when you create your data dictionary, you actually end up with a really full colored, already legend out map you know that's got different things like if you want to use a dashed red line for your um site boundary you just choose site boundary and you've already created that as your data dictionary to be a dashed red line and then you can you can create that and you have you basically makes it so you you create less work for your gis department later on by creating these um these very specific map types that's all a data dictionary is essentially So, uh, Chuck's other question, though, uh, is going to be a longer conversation. Let's do that on the other side of the break. <laughs> Let's do that. <laughs> yeah, we'll be back in a second. Hey, everybody, this is Chris Webster, and I wanted to tell you about our latest sponsor and supporter, Wild Note. You've heard me talk about it on, on the Architect podcast. You'd heard me talk about it on other podcasts, but Wild Note is basically your digital recording solution. Works on Android, works on iOS. You start on the web, on any browser, create your project add your survey forms. You can create your own survey forms. You can modify ones from our survey library, upload those to the project, and then bring them over to your device, record all the information, send it back, export a PDF, an Excel pivot table, coming soon, probably a CSV file, any sort of export that you could possibly imagine, and it's all done for you. Go get your 30-day trial at wildnoteapp.com. The price starts at $50 a month, but comes down from there with annual pricing and volume pricing. So check it out, wildnoteapp.com. Okay, we're back for our final segment of Episode 76, Your Technology Questions. Again, if you have any questions, send them to me. Email chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Uh, tweet to at ArcheaWebby, A-R-C-H-E-O, or at Lugall. So uh, send us those. Paul, Chuck has another question, and I think you're more apt to answer this uh, more more. Uh, I guess, qualified answer to this than I am. Data file structures that are intuitive and useful. Not really a question, more of a statement. Um, how do we create? Let me, let me make that in the form of a question, uh, Jeopardy style. How do we create digital file structures that are intuitive and useful? Or, or start off by saying what that even means. Um,
1: uh, intuitive and useful. What I take that to mean is something that I've been hammering for for decades now, is that if you're creating a file structure to record archaeological data, Make it human readable. Don't use obscure codes that mean things. If you can just use a word instead, um, you know, I've actually, I'm not archaeological, but was dealing with um, with uh, some data about ethnicity of applicants to the school that I work and uh, and the admissions department had been doing this for a long time, and they they um, they record things like AA for African American and LH for Latino Hispanic. But sometimes that's L slash yeah. H, and if somebody identifies as both uh, African American and Latino Hispanic, it's going to be AA slash LH, unless it's H slash AA, or you know, uh, you know, <laughs> it's a problematic as opposed to if they'd written it out, there would be no ambiguity, right? So, I think the highest right. priority is if you want your data to live beyond your project, beyond your software if you want somebody 100 years from now to be able to go back and look at your data and be able to interpret it, is you have to absolutely make it human readable. And there are different ways about that. I mean, you can do that as a CSV, CSVs are pretty nicely mm-hmm. structured, rows and columns. If you keep it clean and keep, uh, e- keep each column distinct and then each row distinct, um, you can do that uh, quite nicely. If you want to get a more complex kind of data structure, uh, the two big options are XML, XML. Which is really wordy, but it's nice and that it's very object oriented, and that you have uh, you have objects and attributes, and that you can go and drill in on those attributes quite detailed. And you can also have a, a definition file that says, you know, what kinds of attributes you can have, and can it be only be one of this, or could be multiple? You know, different things that that matter on a database aspect. Um, and again, it's human readable. Primarily, it doesn't have to be. People can screw up and make codes instead mm-hmm. of uh, a instead of attributes that have real names but um but it it I think helps it facilitates thinking about your data as something that somebody might be able to go in and without a computer actually parse And so now the other part that's come up over the last 10 years or so uh related to xml much lighter though is json json javascript object notation mm-hmm. um, and that's another kind of object oriented way of displaying data and things get nested um, you know like tabbed indented uh, as you go down and objects and attributes and attributes of those attributes. And you can go on through like that. Um, I would, if I were designing any software right now that had to write data, I would be looking very seriously at saving it as JSON, just because that is at the moment kind of the lingua franca amongst the internet programmer world. Uh, and if you save that as a straight out UTF, a text file you can use multiple different um, different scripts in it. You can save it out, read it with anything. And somebody, again, a, an archaeologist 100 years from now, will be able to open that file and more or less reinterpret it without too much difficulty. So I think that digital file structures are intuitive mm-hmm. and useful, means more than anything else, means human readable. Archival. Archival, yeah. absolutely.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Archival from a... I think um, defining the word archival, archival from a digital data standpoint is something people need to wrap their heads around. It's uh, something I had to wrap my head around because archival usually means from a, you know, from a preservation standpoint, it basically means I don't want this to deteriorate over time, right? I mean, that's what archival technically just means. It means in a hundred years, I want to see this in the quality it is now. And we we typically think of Data the same way. And we have to, we have to put it on things that actually won't deteriorate. If you saved all your data on zip disks 20 years ago, I hate to tell you, but it's probably gone. (laughs) But, um, and (laughs) even CDs, CDs and and, and DVDs, uh, they are not permanent. Um, They're starting starting to do great.
1: If you, if you save stuff on DVD 15 years ago, take a look at it now and move it to a different medium, please, because you're going to lose it. Exactly.
0: Exactly. So, so that is, that is still a definition of archival, but I think, I think we have to definitely consider with digital data the readability of the data. It might you might have put it on the the best disc that you had, and it's a it's this thing that will last for a thousand years. But I'll tell you what: in five hundred years, if nobody can read it, who cares if it exists at all? Uh, if it if it's actually unreadable, it's like a if it's a like a, I mean, it, you could look at it like a new language. Somebody would have to learn, you know, in five hundred years because it was written in this language, this programming language that. Is has just been lost to time. We've moved on from that. So if you, like Paul said, um, you know, have it exported and saved in its final format, you know, sure, put on the special file formats for whatever program you want to read it with. But also include a file that's just got a human readable, you know, text style file that that probably anything in in through time will be able to read. That's what I would say. Um, you know, that's, that's gotta be part of the archival conversation. I don't know if we exactly talked about what, uh, what Chuck wanted, but that's where we went with it.
1: Well, it wasn't a question, but it's, uh, you know, it's a jumping off point for, yeah. I think actually uh, an entire discussion right. of its own, uh, digital file structures are intuitive and useful. I think, yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Whenever possible. I mean, the, the, the real trick is when you have binary data. Mm-hmm. Right. If you've got something from a sensor and it's not recorded as uh, as numbers that you can throw into a CSV as columns and rows, mm-hmm. um, then that's a whole nother can of worms. But basically, think of it. If you've got um, you look through your old disks and you're going to find like a, an old Mac write file and you might find an old RTF file. <laughs> that Mac write file is hosed. There's nothing yeah. you can do with it anymore. <laughs> Hope you saved it in some <laughs> other format because it's gone. That RTF file, you can still open that. And you can yeah. still look at that, and I think that we have to consider that. And then, since we're on the hot on the heels here of talking about um, about GIS methods, to record transects, and also the Trimble Data Dictionary, um, I just wanted to quickly point out this one program that you may or may not be aware of. It's called GPS Babel. Um, And it's a translator for different GPS types files and GIS files. Um, I've used it a lot in the past. I haven't had need for it in a number of years now, but it's still, I believe, under active development. And, uh, you know, you throw a Trimble file at it and spit out a KML. You throw a KML and you spit out a shape file. Uh, Mm. I used to use it. I had Magellan uh, GPS data collectors for my um, receivers, excuse me, for my data collection from my dissertation work and, uh, you know, I'd take the dumps from that and then uh, and then run it through GPS Babel in order to get things I could map in Google Earth. You know, so, uh, nice. very, very important and that's another part of the whole question of, uh, of longevity of your data is being able to translate it, you know, some point in the future using either built-in software of the program that created it or else third-party program like GPS Babel in order to translate. But, you know, if you have data that's in a binary format and it can be represented in uh, in text, um, I would definitely look at doing that. And so if that's something that you mm-hmm. have um, that, that you can do with GPS, be able to make your your data a little more archival, I definitely would look into it. And then, you know, then there's the whole other question I started with of uh, if you're writing your own software, what do you think of in terms of uh, of your data structures and your file formats? and again yeah human readable
0: <laughs> well in the they, we i linked to it in the uh, uh, in the show notes but uh, gps Babel's website looks like it was written about 15 years ago yeah it hasn't been um, updated that being since said, I first,
1: <laughs> since i did that yeah.
0: yeah so whether or not it'll run still remains to be seen because it says it runs on microsoft windows xp vista Windows 7 and Windows 8. Um, uh, But it also says, I know, it also says uh, Mac OS X and Linux. So, um, yeah, I don't know. We'll see. It'd be great if it does still run. It is open source development. And, um, uh, yeah, I don't know. Try it out.
1: It kind of came out of the uh, Linux world, so there's really two parts to it. There's the command line part that runs by itself and I think probably still does run on uh, on most platforms. And then there's the uh, the GUI front end, which is if there are going to be problems with it, that's where I'd expect them to be.
0: Right, probably. Okay, uh, well, we only have a couple questions left and about uh, seven or eight minutes left. So uh, let's go to Silver's question, our final question on GIS, and there's an easy answer to this question. Any new software that could replace ArcGIS? And the one solid answer to that question is QGIS, otherwise known as Quantum GIS. Uh, I am constantly surprised by the number of people that don't know about QGIS. It does everything ArcGIS can do. I'm sure there's some... There's some high-end, like, really high-end things you can do with ArcGIS with their, you know, library linking and all this different stuff um, that maybe would be difficult or impossible with QGIS. But quite frankly, most of us just need to make maps, read maps, and 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 do stuff with maps, right? So, uh, and that being said, even if you're doing some of the other um, complicated things like viewshed analysis and all that other stuff, you can get the scripts and the plugins and the programs and things like that to put into QGIS to actually do all those things. And most of the tools are very similar to ArcGIS. So if you already know how to use ArcGIS, but you want to save yourself $6,000 a year, then go download QGIS and your learning curve will be very short and you can go in there and use it. Um, The only thing I didn't really like about QGIS when I first started using it was the map template feature, like actually creating a printable map. It really seemed... Not very intuitive, um, and they've they've done some improvements to this uh, in the in the last couple of years, but uh, that's one thing I really didn't like that much uh, about it. But that being said, once I figured it out, I knew how to do it. So the, you know it's just a matter of figuring it out. And since it is open source software, there are thousands of tutorials on YouTube and other platforms on, if you want to know, don't type in how do I use QGIS? That's people who don't know how to use the internet. Type that in. Type in, how do I draw a line with QGIS? How do I, you know, uh, update a point? How do I import a map? How do I georeference? How do I, you know, be specific? And you'll probably find something that is very specific about that. So yeah, I don't know of any other solid GIS software that people are using other than ArcGIS and QGIS. If there's anything no, else out there, Paul, do you No, anything?
1: I, I haven't used ArcGIS enough, and I haven't used QGIS recently enough to, um, to to really tell you a side-by-side comparison. But ArcGIS, the last time I used it was, jeez, mm-hmm. oh, uh, as, a, as a young grad student and... Um, And then it was clunky and and problematic. And I know it's, it's definitely, you know, it's a leader. It's a software leader for a reason. But I also believe that from what I've seen a lot of people do with it, they're using it just because it's the only thing they know of, and they know, and uh, and there's somebody at their school yeah. that knows it, and so they can teach them enough that they can use it. But it's really, it's kind of the same problem that you have with people who use Word all the time for all their word processing when they could get away with something simpler and more straightforward uh, in most of the time with fewer problems, right. actually, because Word is a, is a bit of a beast and is prone to corrupting its own files, even now. <laughs> Ask me how I know. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> Not saying that ArcGIS corrupt its own files, but uh, but the obvious answer is uh, take a look at QGIS. It, you know, it probably isn't as fully featured, yeah. but from what I've seen, it's pretty fully featured. Um, I first was looking at QGIS when I was working on my dissertation. I was using Grass. Um, which is good, but very Mm -hmm. difficult and slow and based off of some very, very now outmoded uh, paradigms of how one uses a computer program. Uh, And that was just as QGIS was getting off the ground. And, you know, I could see they had their head on straight, but it just wasn't fully featured enough for me to use my data that I had um, at the time in it to produce the stuff that I needed and I had all sorts of recipes and stuff ready for me in in grass that I'd already created so I didn't want to have to go and reinvent everything while I was trying to write Um, but since then QGIS Mm -hmm. has really taken off it's got a big user community and like you said there are a lot of different tutorials out there so if you're not you know an ArcGIS jockey take a look at it Uh, If you are an ArcGIS jockey, take a look at it because it might be, you know, a simpler way of doing what you need to do. Um, But again, I can't compare that. I can't speak from comparing them side by side because I I haven't used them like that recently enough to to really know.
0: Okay. Well, if uh, I'm I'm curious to know if there are any other... um you know, GIS alternatives out there, probably open source would be my guess uh, out there. If you do, you know, let us know, let us know in the comments. So uh, we have one final question and that is from Stuart and I have a very short answer for him. He says, can a drone not do not do my job for me by now? I'd rather stay in bed. My answer is yes, Stuart, a drone can definitely do your job. <laughs> 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 oh man, Stuart, I hope you're listening to this. Um, anyway, uh, they, the, the longer answer to that is uh, no, uh, a drone can't fully replace the job of a, of a field technician or crew chief or anything like that just yet. However, drones are starting to replace certain tasks that we can do um, or they're not starting to replace. They can. I don't think anybody's actually doing it regularly in practice where it's just like part of the conversation. But drones can definitely take pictures, take site overviews. I mean, the fact that you can stick a twelve hundred dollar drone in your backpack in a tiny little case and I'm talking about the Mavic Pro or even the Mavic Air. Uh, The fact that you can do that, throw it up, use about two minutes of its battery life um, of the 20 minutes that you get, and then throw it back in your backpack and get some really amazing photography. And georeferenced photography, um... That's just phenomenal to me. The fact that you can, you can have a pre-programmed flight path that says, I want to go in a spiraling outside pattern and then flip around 180 degrees and come spiraling back in, taking photographs the entire way and turn that into a 3D model later on. And while it's doing that, you're just working on the ground because with structure from motion, as we found out, you could have people moving around on the ground and doing different things while the drone's taking its photographs and you're probably not going to be in the model because you're moving and the drone is moving and it's not recording things that are moving. It's only recording things. Uh, the, the software is recording things that are static. So, um, it's pretty crazy that we can do that. And I've had lots of conversations with the people about the final piece of the puzzle here, which is basically drones doing survey. I still think that is a viable alternative. Um, I think drones can do survey and you can have people look at the images and then send crews out to just where the hits were, not where, um, not to go out and survey 30,000 acres and only find 2,000 acres worth of stuff. But survey 30,000 acres to 100% completion, not the 5 or 10% completion we're lucky to get on a 30-meter interval survey survey 100% of it in a very small fraction of time and then just send archaeologists to the hit points that were discovered either via software or via somebody simply just looking at the footage. So um, the answer, Stuart, is no, not yet, but I really think that it's coming down the line, um, especially as competition gets heavier and heavier for projects. Any Anything that gives people market advantage is going gonna, is gonna to win them a contract, and these bigger companies are smart enough to know that, and they're going to be developing these sorts of things to, to be able to do that and save money. So yeah so paul anything on the are, are drones taking your job
1: <laughs> you mean uh <laughs> fixing computers that people have spilled their uh, their tea into no i don't think so not yet
0: sounds like something a robot can do though
1: <laughs> <laughs> telling people to restart their computers uh you know every now and then when things start not working right yeah, yeah i think
0: i think computers I think computers are going to be disposable at some point. Like if you spill something on it, like your data is in the cloud, you simply just throw your computer in the, in the recycling bin next to you and you 3d print a new one while you're at lunch and, and you're done. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like why fix them at some point that they, they'll just be completely disposable, 100% recyclable and no data stored on it. That's where I think we're headed. And I don't think we're, I don't think it's going to take too long to get there.
1: No, we're partially there with the uh, Google Chrome's Chromebooks rather.
0: Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. You can get one of those for like 150 bucks. Yeah. Um, I want to talk real fast in the last, like we have no time left, but I, I just got to mention this cause it's kind of interesting. Um, I don't know if anybody listens to the uh, the pitch. It's a podcast on Gimlet, and uh, just look for the pitch. Just type it in your your podcast player. But basically, they they bring on. Uh, I think they've got a set group. It's kind of like Shark Tank, but for podcasting. Um, they're they're in fact, it's exactly like Shark Tank, um, except for podcast. And people can apply to be on the pitch. But there was a there was a company that came on last November, and that's November 2017, as you're listening to this. And it was a company called Cleek. Q-L-E-E-K, and their website is Q-L-E-E-K dot M-E. And they were kind of trying to bring back record and CD sharing, like people sharing and gifting and doing things like that, but in a more digital media way. And it's kind of a – I mean, I'm I'm not – I took my entire CD collection and digitized it and got rid of it. I was never really tied to that kind of thing. But this, for some reason, like hits my elect- my technological emotional um, you know, sensors and says, wow, I kind of like the idea of this thing. Basically, there's a little player and you have this little hexagon shaped um, kind of wooden disc, but there's electronics inside of it. And that little wooden disc kind of thing is the album. It's a, it's an entire album. You can, you can have put on it whatever you want. You buy this thing. It's got the digital music on it and you can physically hand that to somebody and they just simply drop it on top of this little clique player thing. And it senses that it's there and starts playing music. And then they've got this hive thing. They call it. It's like this hexagon thing. You buy these, um, you buy these holders to, to kind of hold them on the wall and they've got their own designs on them. And it's just the idea of being able to display stuff like that and then to pull it down and drop it into a little player and then maybe to gift it and hand it to somebody. I don't know. It kind of fits for me, even though I'm all techie uh, and I don't want things. I just kind of like it. And I had to mention it. It's just a weird kind of unique thing. They're having a problem with funding right now because they didn't actually be, they weren't actually successful on the pitch, but then they ended up, getting some other funders to come in and and uh, and, and get them going. Um, they're having a problem with the players uh, manufacturing those. They need a lot of money to manufacture the players. So they're actually backordered on the website as we're talking here in in mid-March of uh, 2018. So anyway, it has nothing to do with technology and archaeology. I just wanted to mention it because archaeologists like albums and things like that. And I thought this was kind of a neat little thing. So I thought I'd bring it up. Anyway, I don't think I have anything else, Paul. Do you got anything else to wrap up this uh, podcast?
1: No, no. I really enjoyed uh, doing this, this. We have to do it again. Take uh, viewer questions, listener questions, rather, and uh, and discuss them a bit because they have some great questions. A lot of uh, grist for the mill, I think.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we can't we can't be sitting up here in our our ivory podcast tower thinking we know what you guys want to know about. So <laughs> definitely let us know, and we'll try to muddle our way through it. And and especially if you have a a guest that you'd like us to bring on or something like that. Maybe you're the guest, maybe you're the expert and you want to talk about what you've been doing. That was cool with tech or, um, or something you've been doing. So, you know, we'll bring you on and we'll
1: chat about it. I'm really curious to hear from somebody just, uh, even if they don't have something fully fleshed out, but if they're working on an idea, Mm -hmm. you know, that involves tech and archeology, span I think that it's worthwhile to hear it and, and discuss it and, uh, try to, you know, pick it apart a little bit. Um, If you have something that you're working on, a program, uh, hardware, software, doesn't matter, uh, that you, a new technique of using existing equipment, uh, I'd Mm -hmm. love to hear it. We'd love to discuss it here. Yeah,
0: absolutely. So, all right. Well, thanks a lot, Paul. Um, Thanks a lot for coming on the show and answering all these questions.
1: Thanks, Chris. Always fun.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And again, send us in your questions and comments. We'll see you next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Archaeotech
1: Podcast. Links to items mentioned on the show are in the show notes at slash archaeotech. Contact us at Chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com and Paul at Lugal.com. Support the show by becoming a member at slash members. The music is a song called Off Road and is licensed free from Apple. Thanks for listening.
0: Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to com slash members for more info.